So Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. So good morning, Calvary Chapel. Good morning, our Facebook family and friends and our online viewers. Good morning. Now the other day, as I was reading, my um, Bible schedule brought me to Isaiah chapter 65. And, um, and as I'm reading that, verses 1 through 3, it really gave me an impression of God's heart. And I think it's going to help us understand God's heart, especially here in Revelation. Because I think a lot of people are so fearful of the book of Revelation because they think it's such a fearful book that it's all God's judgment and all God's wrath. And it's not that at all. Yes, there is judgment. Yes, there is wrath. But there is God's mercy and grace and his love and his heart for people in this book. And I don't want you to see one and miss the other because it's his mercy and grace that really shine through in this book. And so this verse, I think, really shows us God's heart. And he speaks his heart through his prophet Isaiah, and he says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation which did not call on my name, Isaiah 65, verse 1. So this verse, this first verse really says it all, really gives you a real good indication of the heart of God. God does not ignore or hide his face from those who will never give him a second thought. Think about that for a minute. Those who would never give God a second thought, God, for his part, will not hide his face or ignore them. In fact, he says to those who are hurting, to those who are lo lonely, to those who are struggling, I'm here. Here I am. Here I am. I am here for you. Yet, as in the case of Israel, whom, of course, this verse is addressed to, they turned to idols instead of turning to God. And although this was written over 3,000 years ago, it describes the world that we live in today, doesn't it? A world that's hurting, a world that's struggling, a world that's lonely. But people will turn to anything, anything to stop from hurting, anything to, to calm the struggle, or anyone except God. And he goes on to say, I've spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face. That could have been written today. It could have been written for us, for the people today of this world. But I want you to picture this. Despite this, despite the idol worship, despite the sins against God, he holds his hands out in an accepting way. He's saying, come to me any way you are. Come to me. And I know this might sound a little contrived to some of you, but listen, God will take us any way we come to him. But he loves us too much to leave us that way. And that's a fact of Scripture. That's not just a corny saying. It's a fact of Scripture. The Bible says, while we were still sinning, Christ died for our sins. While we were at our worst, Jesus looked across the ages and saw your face and my face and said, he or she is worth dying for. He or she is worth sacrificing my life for. How amazing is that? That Jesus would look at us as unlovable as we were and still are and say, you're worth saving. God holds out his hands. God holds out his hands to accept us. Jesus held out his hands on the cross so that we could be holy and acceptable to Almighty God. So that we would be acceptable through his shed blood on the cross. Amen? Amen? And all you have to do, all you have to do is hold out your hands to God and say, here I am, Lord. Here I am. Hold me. Ask for him to hold you, and he'll wrap his loving arms around you. Seek his embrace, and he will embrace you. But sadly, for many of the inhabitants of the earth at this time in the tribulation, and even this day that we live in today, they will never accept God's gift of salvation. 
They will never accept his offer of salvation. And that's heartbreaking, not only for us, but especially for God. Look at verses 1 through 2 in Revelation 11. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So before we even get started this morning, we have a little issue to clear up, and that is called a textual variant. And all that means is that not all of the scriptures are in agreement with each other. And so the verse that's the issue is right here in verse 1. Now some of your translations doesn't say what I just read, especially if you're reading from the NASB. The NASB says, someone said, get up and measure the temple. The New King James says, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure measure the temple. The the problem here, the textual variant here, is the angel. Okay, Other translations say, I was told, go and measure the temple of God. So the point is that most of the transcripts, most of the manuscripts, agree that this was not an angel talking to John at all. However... It is the same person who the angel in Revelation 10 swore to, who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, the sea and the things that are in it, Revelation 10, 6. And who do we say that was? Jesus. So this person that tells John to measure the temple is Jesus. It's not an angel. And so John's handed a measuring rod, and he's told to measure the temple, the altar, and all those who worship in it. So the first question that comes to mind, or at least to my mind, is what temple? Now in Ezekiel chapter 42, verses 2 through 5, and Ezekiel 42, chapter 42, Ezekiel is also told to measure a temple. That temple, we believe, is the millennial temple. So which temple is the one John's told to measure? And I believe this is the temple that is standing in Jerusalem just prior to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know... That Jewish temple that's in Jerusalem right now sits right on the Temple Mount, right there. You guys know that temple? It's a future temple. And it's a future temple spoken of by both Jesus and Daniel. Jesus said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, Matthew 24, 15. So Jesus is speaking to who on the Mount of Olives? Who's he talking to? His apostles, his disciples. He's speaking to his Jewish apostles, his Jewish disciples. Therefore, he's speaking to the Jewish people because when he says, when you see, he's talking to the Jewish people. When the Jewish people see the holy place defiled. This had not happened during Jesus' ministry. And it had not happened after his death and resurrection. In fact, it would not or could not happen because in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus destroyed the temple just as Jesus said he would. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you can still see those stones that they toppled down off of the Temple Mount to the ground. And you can still see them lying there just as Jesus said they would. Daniel spoke of a future temple. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, Daniel writes, Then he shall confirm a covenant for many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, and he's talking about it in the temple, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. So Daniel's shown a vision of 70 weeks in the book of Daniel. This verse that I just read refers to the 70th week, the last week of Daniel. And it speaks of the it speaks of the Antichrist who enters into a covenant with the Jewish people for one week. Without getting into a lot of details, we're talking a week of uh, a, what we're talking about here is a week of years, which in this case equals seven years. And then he breaks that covenant or peace treaty and enters this holy place, the temple, and defiles it, just as Jesus said he would in Matthew 24. So Jesus and Daniel both say there will be a temple, and the reason we know this is a future temple is because the Antichrist 
is not here yet. Or at least he hasn't made himself known yet. He's going to break a peace treaty, a covenant, with the Jewish people, between the Jews and the Muslims, which has not been agreed upon by both parties yet. Correct? Only the Jews are benefiting by these peace agreements. The Muslims don't want anything to do with them. And he enters a holy place, which is not standing yet, and defiles it. So this is all future we're talking about, okay? And I don't believe it's in the too distant future, by the way. And the problem with all of this, of course, is that there is no temple standing there currently at this time. And to make matters worse, there are two Muslim holy sites currently standing on the Temple Mount, the Alaska Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. Now, the Muslims have been increasing control over the Temple Mount since 1967, and today, Jews and Christians are not allowed to worship on the Temple Mount. In fact, when you visit the Temple Mount, and you can visit it, you have to go through very stringent security. And in addition to looking for bombs and guns and all the normal stuff, they're looking for Bibles. You cannot bring a Bible on the Temple Mount. So if you can't even bring a Bible on a Temple Mount, how are we going to have a temple built on this site? It's interesting to note that the Jewish people have already begun to reconstruct the temple implements needed for temple worship as described in Exodus chapters 25 through 32. And if you ever get a chance to visit Jerusalem, I highly recommend going to the Temple Mount Institute, which is right in the heart of the city of Jerusalem, and you can see some reproductions of these temple implements that they've already reconstructed. You can actually take a video tour, a, a virtual tour, through the third temple. It's a pretty amazing tour they take you through. It's a very modern-looking temple. A red heifer whose ashes is needed to cleanse and purify the temple upon opening is being sought. Now, there have been nine used to purify the first and second temples. They are actively searching for the tenth. So they have the, they have the implements already, already constructed, already made. They're searching for a red heifer. All they need is a temple. Now, please take note that most of the Jewish people involved in this whole program believe that one day there will be a third temple standing on the Temple Mount. And there's those who believe that the only true site for the temple is where Herod's temple once stood, or where they believe it once stood, and that is right underneath the Dome of the Rock. And of course, that would mean tearing down one of the most holy sites in the Muslim world, right? not going to go over very well with the Muslims. In fact, the Islamic authorities have made reference to the fact that they don't think the temple ever existed on that site. And you know what? They may just be right. Because there's those who believe that the temple actually stood to the north of the Dome of the Rock. To, on a place now where there's a little tiny building called the Dome of the Spirits. And if that's correct, then... The Jewish temple could be built on that mount without ever disturbing the Dome of the Rock. In fact, if that is the case, then the Dome of the Rock would wind up right in the court of the Gentiles, and that would fit perfectly into our message this morning. Because the Gentiles, the Muslims, would be trampling the outer court of the Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles, for three and a half years. And if this were the place where that third temple is built then it would also mean that the Jews and the Muslims could both worship there, and one wouldn't have to be torn down so the other one could worship. That would be in accordance with a peace treaty that the Antichrist would broker between the Jews and the Muslims. This is all speculation. When we see this, it's going to be like it being in a movie theater in the balcony watching it from up top. We're going to see, the, oh, man, that's how it happened. But... This is pretty close. Based on what we know, based on what we see today, this is pretty close as to how it could happen. Now, we know from Scripture that there will be a third temple built somewhere on the Temple Mount early in the seven-year tribulation. With modern construction today, with the technology that we have, that temple could go up quickly, real quick. And we're not talking about Herod's temple here. I believe we're talking about a simple temple the same way Solomon was told to create it, which is a little much smaller than what Herod had done. 
So to, to reconstruct something like that, I don't believe would take very long at all, especially if you're in a hurry to get it built. But in the middle of that seven-year tribulation, at the three-and-a-half-year point, first the Antichrist will confirm a covenant. He'll make a peace treaty between the Jews and the Muslims, something that no one else has been able to do. And then in the middle of that seven years, in the middle of that, in three and a half years, he enters into the newly built temple and desecrates the holy place, just like Antiochus Epiphanes did in 171 B.C. When he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple, and then he put a statue of Zeus in the holy place. And that's going to spark, when he does that, that's going to spark what Jesus says there will be a great tribulation, such as, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, the elect is who? Anyone know? The Jewish people. Those days will be shortened. Matthew 24, verses 21 through 22. Daniel describes a time similar to this, to the time of the tribulation. When Antiochus Epiphanes, who for us is a type of Antichrist, and I know this is a lot to get, and if I'm losing you, please see me after service, and I'll try to explain as best as I can. This has happened before. That's the whole point. When Jesus says, as the prophet Daniel said, this has happened before. So we have an idea, we have a picture of what this is going to look like when the Antichrist does it. Let me read Daniel chapter 8, verses 12 through 14. He, referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of the transgression, an army, which in this case was the Syrian army, was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. And I heard the Holy One speaking, and another Holy One said, to a certain one who was speaking, how long will this vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? He given of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 days or three and a half years, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And so without going into a very long story about Hanukkah and the Maccabees and all of that, which is very, very interesting, by the way, Antiochus Epiphanes and He's controlling Jerusalem, just like Rome did. He's taken over the, over the whole city, the whole um, area. He enters into the temple and desecrates it, as I said, by sprinkling pig's blood everywhere. And then the Maccabees, and I'm giving you the most short version of this, drive him out. You know, and that's where the whole story of the, the menorah and, and Hanukkah comes from. They only had enough to burn for for eight days, and it lasted longer, it lasted through the whole battle, and so that's where we get the story of Hanukkah from. He goes in, he desecrates it, they drive him out, and then they go in and they, they can't even clean up the sanctuary anymore. They have to dismantle the whole thing and reconstruct the whole thing. They have the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah, and so I'm sure I butchered that story trying to tell it too fast, but basically that's how it goes. If you want to know a little slower version of that, just see me later. But he defiles the temple, just as the Antichrist will in the middle of the tribulation. So the temple court of the Gentiles was trampled underfoot, and it will happen again. The temple of Solomon, which is the one that, the, that Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated, will be desecrated again by the Antichrist in the third temple. Now once this third temple is built... The Antichrist will turn against the Jewish people. And as I said, he'll enter into the place where only the Jewish priests are allowed to enter. And he will probably set up a statue or a, a picture of himself and declare himself to be God and somehow defile, well, just the fact that he's in there declaring himself to be God is a defilement. And he's going to defile the sanctuary. From that point on, the Antichrist's wrath will be against the Jewish people and against the Christians who are left on this earth. And Jesus tells the Jewish people, he warns them, at this point, you're going to have to flee from this wrath. He said, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let him who was on the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house. And let him who was in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Matthew 24, verses 16 through 20. So most scholars believe that when the Jewish people flee, they're going to flee into the mountains of Jordan, and that's where they're going to take refuge in the rock city of Petra. Now, it's, again, it's a speculation, but if I was going to flee into the mountains in the desert, that's exactly where I would be. See how fortified that city is? You're not getting in there. So they're safe in there, and they're going to wait out the rest of the tribulation in there. And this may be the time when the Jewish people realize that the Antichrist is not their savior, and they realize that they've made a mistake, that Jesus is the Messiah. And so, as Paul says, all of Israel, or all who are remaining in Israel at this time, will be saved. Paul wrote in Romans 11, verses 26 through 27, And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And for this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins." So all of Israel will be saved the same way you and I were saved, when we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. Isaiah wrote, and they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called, sought out, a city not forsaken, Isaiah 62.12. So all of Israel will one day, praise the Lord, be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And that's why the tribulation is for the salvation of the Jewish nation. Look at verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So here we meet the two witnesses. Who are they? Who are the two witnesses? We can only speculate because the Bible doesn't give us their names, does it? That's not going to stop us from trying to figure out who they are, but the Bible does not give us their names. And so we have to speculate on who they could be. But they're described as an olive tree in a lampstand, and we find a very similar description of these, of them, in Zechariah chapter 4. Now the angel who talked with me came back and, and and weakened me as a man who is weakened out of his sleep. Wakened, rather. Wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at the left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, what are these, my lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, this is, the word of the, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by my might or by power, but by my Holy Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now in ancient Israel, they used olive oil to light the lamps, both in the sanctuary and in your homes. And so these witnesses could very well be witnesses to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And their power is not going to come from them. It's going to come from the Spirit of God. Meaning that these witnesses, their light is not going to be extinguished until God allows it to be extinguished. Meaning, until that time, they are invincible. And it's a reminder for all of us that we are a light in this dark world. A light that will not be extinguished until the Lord extinguishes it. And that happens when he raptures us out of here. But until then, we're not going anywhere. Until then, we're called to be the light of Christ in this dark world. Amen? So who could they be? And as I said, even though God's word is silent on this, there is no... There, there is no loss of people who want to try to figure out who they are. Well, there's a couple of candidates. And if you notice in your bulletins, you each have those little voter cards. And so here both here the candidates' platforms before you decide to vote, which is always a good thing, even in the upcoming election. Make sure you know what they stand for, okay? 
So, two of the candidates are Moses and Elijah, who would be representing the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah get a little boost in the polls because they appear before Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Or it could be Elijah and Enoch, because they were both raptured and never died, right? Now, Enoch and Elijah get a boost in the polls when Zechariah writes this, And I said to them, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me, saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Zechariah 4, verses 11 through 14. So if these two olive trees described here on our passage of Scripture are the same olive trees described by God as the two anointed ones, then that means that these two olive trees, or these two witnesses, were standing in the presence of God long before John sees them in the book of Revelation. Now, how Enoch and Elijah get a boost out of this in the polls is because Enoch was walking with God, right? And then what? He was taken. Genesis 5, verse 24. It says that Enoch was walking with God, meaning that Enoch was always in the presence of God, both here on earth and in heaven. Elijah said in 1 Kings 17, 1, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. So Elijah stands in the presence of God, and Enoch walked in the presence of God. And notice what Jesus says here. He says, They're my witnesses, my two witnesses, indicating that they have a special relationship with Jesus. They stood with the Lord while on this earth and when they entered heaven. And that certainly could describe Enoch and Elijah because they certainly stood with the Lord both in the flesh and in the spirit against, in the midst of living in a very ungodly generation. Now, if they are Enoch and Elijah, that could mean that Enoch is the witness to the nations and Elijah the witness to Israel. But, again, it's all speculation. It's just fun to, to think about it. And I'm not trying to, because, listen, what, what we see dimly right now, praise the Lord, one day we will see very clearly. We'll know exactly what all of this means. And I'm not trying to influence the polls here. I'm just giving you some information so you can make an informed, intelligent choice. But whoever they are, they receive their power from the Holy Spirit, and they will prophesy God's, what God puts in their mouth, that's what they will say. And the message for all of us in this is that we also are witnesses for the Lord, aren't we? And even as I, you know, as I think about that, I have to think about what kind of witness am I? What kind of witness are you? And even as I say those words, I cringe because I know that I, always ha I haven't always been a good witness in the flesh for the Lord. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we standing for our Lord in the midst of an ungodly generation? And there's no doubt we live in an ungodly generation. Do we take a stand for what God is against? What God calls an abomination, like Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. Do we consider those an abomination to us? And maybe that's a good place for all of us to start. The things that God considers an abomination, we should also. We need to take a stand against those things and stand for God and stand against evil. Amen? So take a couple seconds, now that you've heard the platforms, and mark your ballots, who you think is going to win the election, Moses or Elijah or Elijah and Enoch, and we're going to take a vote by hand here in a few minutes. I wish we had some Jeopardy music to play. <laughs> Revelation 11, verses 5 through 6. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with plagues, with all plagues as often as they desire. So fire will spew from their mouths 
They're able to create droughts and plagues on the earth as often as they desire. Now, perhaps this is just an image. Maybe, and, and listen, it could be literal. Their fire just comes right from their mouth. Perhaps when they speak, they call down the fire of God from heaven to burn up those who try to kill them. We don't know for sure. But when you consider that, it's another plug for Moses and Elijah. Moses turned the water into blood in Egypt, didn't he? Elijah called down fire from heaven to burn up the prophets of Baal. Moses had a hand in the plagues in Egypt, didn't he? As God brought the plagues upon Egypt. So I'm just throwing that out there. Not trying to influence your vote. Just throwing it out there. But it's not going to be a very nice time to live upon the earth during the reign of these two witnesses. So, now that you fill out your your voter's card, let's have a little fun. Just a show of hands now. How many of you believe the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah? Oh, okay. You're not going to influence God by this vote either. Let me just tell you. How many of you think it's Enoch and Elijah? Oh, i got to say, Enoch and Elijah, I think barely won that one. They pulled it out. So, Lord, it's Enoch and Elijah. Look at verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So they are eventually killed. But there's an awesome message in this, isn't there? Not the fact that they were killed, but just by the fact that they weren't killed until their t- testimony was finished. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not going anywhere until your testimony is finished on this earth. And since God's the only one who knows when, he's the only one that has that little black light that can read the bottom of your foot, which, by the way, is where your expiration date is. You're not going anywhere until God calls you home. Do you understand that? And so do not let this virus or anything else dominate your life. Don't let it decide for you what you're going to do or not going to do. Have faith over fear because you're in God's hands and you're not going anywhere, anywhere at all until your testimony here on this earth is complete and he calls us home. So when these two witnesses' testimony is complete, the beast from the bottomless pit who we know to be who? Satan overtakes them and kills them. You know, in the book of Job, God had formed a hedge of protection around Job and his family. And, and Satan could not get anywhere near them until God removed that hedge of protection. God has put a hedge of protection around these two witnesses. And only when God removed that hedge of protection were they able to be killed. God has a hedge around each one of us. And the power of hell cannot prevail against us until God says it's time. So God says, your witness for me, your testimony here on this earth has come to an end. And at that point, it really doesn't matter how we go home, does it? If we had the choice, we'd all like to choose the most painless way, right? But the important thing to always remember is that we are going home. We're going home. One day, Jesus is going to call us home, whether it's in the rapture or our our testimony is ended. We are going home to be with him. Our death, the way we die, is just a means to an end. And that end is to be with Jesus for all eternity. Amen? Amen. And listen, that's not going to happen one minute, one hour, one day, one month before the Lord says it's going to happen. Look at verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, making merry and send gifts to one another because of these two prophets who tormented those who dwell on the earth. So, our key to where these two witnesses are stationed is found in this verse. In the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. Where's that? 
There's only one place on earth I could describe. Jerusalem. Our Lord was crucified in Jerusalem. So why is it also described as the great city, Sodom and Egypt? Now, Revelation frequently describes Babylon as the great city. Now, remember, before the Antichrist defiles the temple, Israel's in line with the Antichrist. They revere him. They honor him because he helped them build the temple. He helped them reestablish temple sacrifice. So he's a hero to them. Now, because Babylon was what's known as for its idolatry, Sodom for its immorality, and Egypt for its bondage, could it mean that Israel has fallen into bondage in immorality and idolatry yet once again? The answer is yes. If they are sacrificing in the temple again, they are committing an immoral act against God. Because Jesus died once and for all, and the Bible tells us that the blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient. It wasn't then, and it isn't now. And it means that man is making law their idol again, thinking that the law will save them when the only salvation comes through Christ Jesus. So yeah, this is a major sin against God. Now notice the inhabitants of the earth have a party when these two holy men die. These two men are mortal enemies of the entire world. They hate them, just as all of Jerusalem hated Jesus, or most of Jerusalem hated Jesus. And listen, those who hate God, who reject Jesus, who don't fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they're going to hate us. They're going to hate everything we stand for. And they're certainly the ones that hate these two holy men of God. And people around the world are going to rejoice when they die. These two men have upheld the truth for the entire three and a half years they've been here. They've spoken out against the lies that were being spread, against the deceptions that have become worldwide at this point. And people have, are, 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 some people are, are, have a hard time. They're sick of hearing the truth, aren't they? They want their own truth. They want their own reality. As if ignoring the truth will change the truth of the reality of their situation. If we just ignore it, it doesn't it just go away. It won't be true anymore. But just because you don't believe the truth doesn't mean that the truth is not absolute, does it? For instance, let's say you were born with black hair. You can dye it blonde. You can dye it red. You could dye it auburn. You could dye it green. You could shave it off. But it doesn't change the truth of the fact that you have black hair. See, you can ignore the truth. You can reject the truth. You can alter the truth, but the truth will always remain the truth. That's why it's the absolute truth. And that is especially true for the Word of God. His truth is the absolute truth that will absolutely always be the absolute standard of truth. Can you imagine hating anyone this much that when they die, the entire world rejoices? You know, recently the United States killed a very, very, very evil human being. His name was General Hussam Soleimani, and he was one of the most evil people in the world. In fact, when he died, the Iranians, the Iraqis, and the Syrians all rejoiced in the streets. They gave candy to one another. They exchanged gifts. It was a holiday for them. They rejoiced over the death of a very evil man. And this world at this time is going to rejoice over the death of two very godly men. And it just shows you how evil the world is becoming and how much more evil it will get in those days. I know that's hard to believe. Look at verses 11 through 13. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of the life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, there's a lot going on in these verses. The world's hatred for these two witnesses is so deep that they just leave those bodies laying in the street for three and a half days. They just leave them there. Now, the Romans did something similar. 
They would take condemned and leave them hanging on the crosses along the street leading into Rome. So that everyone who saw them, everyone who entered Rome, everyone who walked that street would see the fate of those condemned and it would be a warning to them not to commit a crime in Rome. And a crime in Rome could be as simple as speaking out against the government, right? But I don't think this has anything to do with mankind. I think this is a message from God. God's making a point here. You know, when Jesus was told that his friend Lazarus was sick, what did Jesus do? He waited, didn't he? He waited two more days before he went to Lazarus. Why? Did you ever ask yourself why? Judaic law taught that the spirit remained with the body for three days and that there was hope of the body being resuscitated in those three days. So when Jesus got to the tomb, Lazarus had already been dead for four days, well beyond the belief that the spirit could raise your body. And so when Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb, it was the hand of God. It was a miracle that could not be explained away. These two witnesses were clearly killed. Millions would have seen this on CNN. And they're rejoicing over this. They remained dead in the streets so that all of Israel, all of the world, could see that they were dead. But there's something else here. So that the Jewish rabbis could see that they were dead longer than three days. They're dead three and a half days. And then God breathes breath into them. The same way he breathed breath into Adam, gave him life. Because God is life. God is the giver of life. They're resurrected. And so this is, there's no doubt that this is the hand of God. This miracle cannot be explained away. The resurrection points us to the resurrection of Jesus. And it points us to our own resurrection. Jesus said at the tomb of Lazarus, he said this to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And what we believe is, because Jesus lives, we will live. And so then a voice calls from heaven, and he says, come up here. Just as a voice called from heaven in, in Revelation chapter 4 to John, and said, come up here. It points us to the rapture. One day, soon I hope, we're going to hear that same voice and say, come up here. These two witnesses are resurrected, resurrected and raptured all in the same moment. And so they ascend into heaven in a cloud. Does that sound familiar to you? Same as Jesus ascended into heaven in a cloud in Acts chapter 1. And so as they're being taken up into heaven, there's an earthquake. One-tenth of the city or, or 7,000 people die in this earthquake. This earthquake also points us to the earthquake that shook the earth the day Jesus died on the cross. Did you know that there was an earthquake the day he resurrected as the angel rolled back the stone? All of this happened as a message for those who were in Jerusalem. And, and many, it seems, got that message because the rest were afraid and glorified the name of God. No doubt they saw the similarities between the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of these two witnesses. And they got the message that God was sending them. Praise the Lord. But sadly, there's many who will go on and will never get that message. Even after seeing them rise from the dead and ascend into heaven, they still won't believe it. You know, when Lazarus, a different Lazarus, who sat under the table of the rich man and ate the crumbs that fell from the table, right? When he died, he went where? He's at Abraham's bosom. When the rich man died, he went to a place of torment. And when he got there, he said to Abraham, can I go tell my brothers about this place? And Abraham said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. You know, the apostles and disciples saw Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, and they, I think that's what finally submitted their relationship with him, what finally did it for them, that they knew beyond measure that this was the Messiah. Their lives changed drastically from that day. But there were also 500 people that raised up from the graves around Jerusalem or walking around the city. People saw them. Can you imagine your great, great, great Uncle Harris coming to your, sitting in your living room after he's been dead like 50 years? What do you think of that? People saw this and yet they still would not believe. Listen, why is it that something can happen right in front of two people 
the same thing, and one person sees it one way and believes, and the other person sees the exact same thing and yet doesn't believe. Listen, it all comes down to perception, doesn't it? And there are things in this life that influence our perception, like our needs, our interests, our, ex our expectations. So if we need this world, right, follow along with me, if we need this world because all of that interests us is in this world, then we expect this world to last forever. That's our perception. Then anything that changes that perception will ultimately alter our reality, right? We don't want that. We don't want that. We want to believe what we believe because we don't want to believe anything else. And the people at this time on the earth will see their world falling apart right before their very eyes. And they're going to hang on to this world for as long as they possibly can, even if it means hanging on to a lie. How sad is that? Look at verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So there's another pause before the seventh trumpet and the bowl of judgments. But what happens between this time isn't very pleasant because the persecution of the Antichrist is going to begin. The false prophet's going to start wreaking havoc. There's, going to, there's not enough horrible adjectives to describe what's going to happen during this tribulation. You know, I was talking to Rodney the other day, and I mentioned that I'd recently caught the tail end of the movie Impact. And for those of you who have seen it, Robert Duvall, and I'm going to give you the, the shortest possible explanation of this, he flies his spacecraft into an extinction-level asteroid that's about to kill the Earth, right? And so they fly their spacecraft into this asteroid, destroys the asteroid, but a smaller asteroid gets through, crashes into one of the oceans, and this massive tidal wave takes out a good portion of the world. And I said to Rodney, I said, it's ironic that people will believe the scenario in this movie that it's something that could absolutely happen, because it is, right? But if I were to say to them, well, yeah, that's exactly what Revelation says will happen in the end days. They said, ah, you're crazy, that could never happen. You'd believe a movie in Hollywood before you would believe the Bible. And we know from reading the book of Revelation that this is going to happen exactly as, John, as, as Jesus told John that it was going to happen. And we know from prophecy that we're already moving in that direction. And that's the truth. And so no matter how much you deny that truth, no matter how much you ignore it or reject it, it will not alter that truth. You cannot change the fact that what God says is going to happen in this book is going to happen just as he says it will. You can ignore it. You can hide from it all you want. It's not going to change the fact that it's going to happen. And so for as long as the Lord will allow me to do this, I am going to share the gospel message. And I'm going to share with you how you can avoid the horrors of the tribulation, how you can be rapture ready. Listen, it's as easy as ABC. First, admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one, that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's nothing we can do. There's no amount of good works that we could possibly do to work our way into heaven. There's no way we could be good enough to be accepted by God. God doesn't grade on the curve. You're either covered by the righteousness of his son or you're not. That's it. It's plain and simple. You are either his or you're not. You're either written in the Lamb's book of life or you're not. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area here. It's one way or the other. We're all sinners. And the only way you could be cleansed of that sin is to be cleansed of that sin by the precious blood of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. Period. Jesus said, I'm the, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, no one enters heaven except through me. And so that brings us to the B of ABC. Believe in your heart, with all of your heart, that Christ Jesus died for your sins. Romans 10, 10 verses 10 through 11 says, For with the heart one believes in the righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Meaning that if you make that decision to follow Jesus Christ today, you will never regret it. But I guarantee you that the day Jesus' foot touches down on the Mount of Olives, 
you will already be regretting that decision not to follow him. So once you admit you're a sinner, once you have admitted or, or accepted the fact that Jesus died for your sins, and God's offering you a free gift of salvation, and, and he's reaching out to you, and you reach out and take that free gift from him, and you repent of that sin, and you turn to the Lord, call upon his name. The Bible says in Romans 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no magic prayer. I know in churches around the world today, they're going to do altar calls. And they're going to have you come up front and they're going to say, if you pray this prayer, you will be saved. I don't think so. You can put it into a prayer. But the Bible says, if you call upon my name, if you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. There's no magic in that. If you believe in your heart, and that's the key. That's the key. Not in your head. It's not an emotional decision. It's not an intellectual decision. It's a decision you make with your heart. You've counted the cost. You want to avoid the tribulation. You want to know Jesus Christ. You want to spend eternity with him. You want what the rest of us have. You want that love. You want the Holy Spirit. You want all of it. You want the package. If that's what you truly want with all of your heart, that's your desire, and you call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible's pretty clear. You will be saved. You will be saved. But if you wanted to put that into a prayer, and listen, it starts in your heart. If you believe with all your heart that this is your heart's desire, and you want to put that in a prayer, there's a simple prayer. But again, it has nothing to do with these words. Zero. It's if you've already made that decision in your heart. This is what your heart's desire is. This is what you want. And so if that's what your heart's desire is, I'll pray a prayer with you. If you pray this prayer with me, you will be saved. If, you, if it comes from your heart. So bow your heads. Dear Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I admit to you that I am a sinner. I want to submit my life to you. Surrender my will to you. I repent of my sin. Fill me, Lord, with your Holy Spirit to help me to continue continuously repent of that sin. I am grateful, Lord, that by my repentance, by my acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice, I am cleansed of that sin. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Help me to walk all the days of my life in glory to you. Go before me now. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer, and if you truly believe it with all your heart, I'll see you here or in the air. Amen? Amen? Please stand. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you've changed each and every one of us, Lord, from the inside out. Lord, that we pray that when people see us, they see you. Go before us here today, Lord, as we step out into that ministry field. May we be a true witness for you, Lord Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen. God bless you guys.